0: it
1: is never going to be possible to share truth fully effectively and personally through social media social media is organized and this is a claim that i'm making but i can support it it is organized for the purpose of creating conflict and monetizing that conflict so that the social media companies can make money
2: Welcome to the Elisa Childers Podcast, where we equip Christians to identify the core beliefs of historic Christianity, discern its counterfeits, and proclaim the gospel with clarity, kindness, and truth. Now, most Americans believe that truth is up to the individual, it's relative to each person, rather than it being something that you can objectively know. People talk about speaking my truth or living my truth, Um, but we are faced with utter chaos in our culture, Uh, unprecedented levels of social conflict, purposelessness, hopelessness. Uh, Studies are showing people are more anxious than ever, more depressed than ever, and we desperately need to know whether or not truth exists and how we can find it. Well, two books have just come out, one of which. If you're a regular listener or viewer of my podcast, you're already annoyed by it because I've brought it up so many times, but that's my book, Live Your Truth and Other Lies, Exposing Popular Deceptions That Make Us Anxious, Exhausted, and Self-Obsessed. It's launch week. Guys, I'm so excited and so thankful for all of you who have helped promote the book, posted about it on social media. Um, It's now out into the world, and so that is very exciting. But I also want to talk to you today about another book about truth that came out on the same day, and that's a book called Truth Changes Everything by Dr. Jeff Myers. So I just got to tell you, I'm going to bring uh, Dr. Myers on here in just a moment, but I I get asked to endorse a lot of books, right? And I'm tip- typically don't have time to do it anymore because um, it just if I'm going to keep up with my own ministry, I have to pretty much press the pause button on that. But I wanted to I wanted to read through this one to see if it would be something that I would want to endorse because of my respect for Dr. Meyer's ministry. We've had him on the podcast before, and of course, uh, just curious to see what he was going to say. And I was telling him before we went on the air, this book. Uh, was way different than what I expected. I I think that possibly I kind of expected it to be another take on the typical apologetics, building the case for truth, moving on to the existence of God, the reliability of the Bible. Um, There are so many wonderful books that do that, and um, we've recommended some resources that are like that. But this book is a bit different in that he's really tracing truth through history and its impact on uh, the way people lived in different cultures, in different places, how truth impacted politics, how it impacted plagues, how it impacted so many different things throughout history. And honestly, it was just an, a totally fascinating read. And so it was my honor to to be able to endorse this book that was so good. So um, I want to bring Dr. Myers on here. Of course, many of you know he's the president of Summit Ministries, which is a Colorado-based nonprofit organization that equips and supports the rising generation to embrace God's truth and champion a biblical worldview. Of course, I've been there to teach. It's an amazing program. If you have students in your life that you want to make sure that they get bolstered in truth and a biblical worldview, definitely consider sending them to Summit Ministries. So Dr. Myers, welcome. Thank you so much for coming back.
1: Lisa, I'm really looking forward to our conversation. When we had our, our show before, I think we talked about politics, which is something that's very difficult to talk about without everybody getting really upset. I just right. thought the conversation was, was terrific, and I'm, I'm excited to be back.
2: Well, a lot of my viewers really appreciated that conversation because that was pretty much the first time that I've wandered into the political sphere with this podcast. In fact, before that, I shared with you that I had tried to kind of keep – political opinions sort of out of it. And it became impossible to do that because it's virtually impossible for a Christian to keep your politics separated from your theology. So you helped us create that really strong theology of politics. How should we think about politics? So if anybody has not listened to that episode or watched it, go back in the archives. It's definitely worth listening to because um Jeff has such a uh he he's thought this through quite a bit and has such a great theology of politics so check that out but i want to talk today about truth changes everything it's a great cover i like uh i like the blues and the the little uh stained glass window there that's great yeah. <laughs> with the hand so um like i mentioned this book was surprising to me i it it took a different approach than i possibly expected so, I'm kind of curious, like, what led you to write this book? What, why now? Why, why was this something that you wanted to say, like, we need this book right now?
1: Hmm. Well, I've seen the same statistics that you've seen, Elisa, that we're in a tough spot in this country. Uh, Americans tend to be independent, and that's one of the things we, we Americans appreciate about being an American. But it, it has led to this idea that truth is, that even truth itself is up to the individual. It's not just that our rights are individual, but truth itself is up to the individual. And so the old idea that Truth, capital T Truth exists and we can discover it has given way to this idea that all we really have are truths, that no one can really know anything ultimately true. And so we just have our own individual social constructions. And so it's Truth, capital T versus Truths, small t. And we've now passed the tipping point, Elisa. That's I think one of the initial motivations for me was okay, wow. We're now actually to the place where the majority, the vast majority of Americans now believe that truth is up to the individual and in the church, which is of concern for me, we've now gotten to the place where we're right on that line, right at the tipping point where even church attending self-identified Christians now say there is no truth out there to be be discovered. I decide what is true for me.
2: Right. And I think we see this play out even among young people, especially Uh, young people in my life who are very committed Christians, they love Jesus, they uh, have, you know, a personal relationship with Jesus, they read their Bibles, and yet I think they've been conditioned by culture to say, well, I'm not going to tell somebody else that that's necessarily true for them. And that's, I think, where we see the erosion of truth even making its way into the church. But one of the things you do in your book that's so fun is you share examples of how quirky and really determined Christian figures throughout history led the way when it comes to things like science, art, medicine, education, politics, justice, and um, even the idea of meaningful work, which was a fascinating topic as well. Can you share a couple of your favorites? You know, obviously, there's there's many of them in the book because you go all through church history, but can you share a couple of those quirky figures that really demonstrate how truth changed the way people thought about things and really affected the world?
1: Oh, these are stories I love to tell. And, and a lot of them haven't been told before, which is one reason I was really excited to write this book. But the, you know, the the basic the basic question I had to deal with is should I just write another book refuting relativism? Should I write a book, you know, defending how we know there is such a thing as truth? And I decided, what would happen if people who really lived as if Jesus is the truth mm. uh, lived that out in every aspect of their lives? And it turns out the world we have is that world, because mm. that's exactly what Jesus followers did. Uh, one of my favorite stories that I told in the book, there's a chapter on art. There's not a lot on Christianity in the arts, to be honest. There aren't very many books on that. There aren't too many people who've thought through how you relate your faith to the world of the arts. And so I tell the story of Antonio Vivaldi, and he was a composer it was actually a priest, but he wasn't very a very good priest because he was constantly distracted by wanting to write music. In fact, at one point he was conducting mass and just left right in the middle to go write music and then came back a little while later and finished the mass. His fellow priests were not amused by this. Uh, they they said, this guy he can't be a priest. We can't We can't have him here. And his head of the diocese, and you'll appreciate this as a musician, he said, Vivaldi cannot be in his right mind because he is a musician. <laughs> it, and and it, it was it was a it was a conflict for him. I, I've been called to the ministry, but I'm really a musician. How do I take those two things and put them together? Mm. Well, he became a composer for orphans. There was an orphanage in Venice at that time called the Hospitale della Pieta. And there were thousands of children who had been dropped off. Many of them had physical deformities. Many of them had were born into, uh, from a mother who was in prostitution and didn't want to take care of the child. So they were dropped off at this orphanage. They were all fed, clothed, uh, trained. The boys could be released at age 16 to go get jobs. But what about the girls? In that particular period in history young women had no prospects unless they could get married and these young women had no ability to get a dowry which means they couldn't be married so vivaldi turned them into the finest orchestras and choirs in all of europe (laughs) they became famous all throughout europe and what's especially cool elisa to me is that vivaldi became a better composer because he had so much composing work to do to keep all of his orchestras and choirs busy. Uh, You know, a concerto is an orchestral piece that features a solo instrument. Vivaldi wrote 500 concertos that we know of. This is the equivalent level of difficulty of writing a book. He wrote 500 that we know of. In fact, in one six year period of his life, he wrote a concerto on average every two weeks. And therefore, he became known as the founder of the Baroque period of music, along with Johann Sebastian Bach. Mm. I always thought that was a fascinating story. He didn't see a conflict between his call to be a Christian and his call to be a musician. And in fact, he used it in a way that gave purpose and meaning and a vocation to young women who otherwise would have no hope.
2: I love that story. It's one that I had not heard before. In fact, many of the stories in this book I had not heard before. Uh, I was particularly intrigued by how you talked about the plague, and when you start to describe what truth actually is, you you go back to the plague. Talk about that a little bit, why you chose to start that way.
1: Well, the... As I was writing the book, of course, we were dealing with COVID in in the United States and around the world, and lots of people were affected by this economically. Uh, Millions of people sadly passed away. Uh, So we were familiar with the idea of rapidly spreading disease in our time. And I thought, I wonder how people in the past dealt with this, because I remembered having heard in my history classes about the Black Death, how many people had died and it turned out it was probably the greatest calamity to ever befall humanity a third to a half of the people in many european cities passed away from this in the most gruesome way possible and you would think elise if there was any time in history where people would have said clearly god has abandoned us we're going to abandon him that would have been it but that isn't what happened. Instead, people who loved Jesus and believed that Jesus is the truth, and I should just make a parenthetical note here, that's really the key to it. The Christian claim is not just that truth exists as a set of logical propositions or that it exists as a mathematical model that accurately describes reality, it's that truth is a person, it's Jesus. That's what people brought into the situation. So Catherine of Siena, for example, who's not widely known by a lot of Protestants, our Catholic friends would know very well who she is. There's a feast day named after her. But she was one of those who said, look, if if, if you want to be with Jesus, Jesus is sitting with the suffering. So you go sit with the suffering and you'll be with Jesus. It was a fascinating difference between her and the medical authorities of her day, who were so unnerved by the plague that anyone who had the means fled. But mm. Catherine and many others who were believers stepped into the situation rather than trying to escape from it, and they became the ones who really ministered. And it changed everything. The church, because the civil governments fell apart, the church became the ones to step in and say, you know, we need to have a program of quarantine. Just the the 40 idea of 40 days of Moses and of Jesus in the wilderness, the idea of a quarantine, 40 days came out of that. They said, we need to have sanitation programs. We need to have health care to take care of people. All those different things that became really the basis of our modern medical system were started by Christians who said, it is not true that God has abandoned us. He mm. is here with us, suffering with us.
2: Yeah, that's really putting your money where your mouth is. You really have to believe that's true in order to stay in a, in a situation like that. That was such an impactful story. And now you, you've you talked about Vivaldi and and the Christian influence in art. Talk about maybe the influence in science. You tell several stories about the the Christian influence in the world of science and how truth relates with that.
1: Well, it's, it's so incredible because pe- people believe there is a, a battle between faith and science. That right. faith is something that's unproven. You know, as Mark Twain said, you know, faith is believing what we know ain't so. <laughs> and that's what a lot of people think, you trust the science. People say this kind of thing all of the time. But are science and faith really at odds? Well, the more I studied it in history, the more I realized it was actually people of faith Who gave us science as Rabbi Lord Jonathan Sachs, who was a Jewish leader in London, passed away a couple of years ago, said, science takes things apart to see how they work. Religion puts things together to see what they mean. And so there wasn't a conflict there. And as it turns out, when you go back in history, you see all of these people who they didn't see any kind of conflict at all. Nicholas Copernicus was teaching a study on apologetics and wanted to be able to reliably prove the date of Easter. So he started doing some astronomical calculations and realized that the Earth revolves around the sun. And our whole understanding of the solar system came out of his teaching what was the equivalent of a Sunday school class. Uh, You have people like Leonard Euler, who was a mathematician and a logician. He was so brilliant and discovered so many things that people in that field to this day joke that if you discover something, Euler's probably already discovered it. And so you just name it after the first person after Leonard Euler to have, have discovered it. But when you look back at his writings, you realize he believed that his work in mathematics and logic was a response to God's call that you you start with you start with if if you want to do science you have to first of all believe that the world is real you have to mm-hmm. believe that it's predictable that an experiment you do at time A and an experiment you do at time B are in the same world which is not something you could have derived from most of the greek philosophy or or eastern theologies you would arrive at it if you believed that the world's designed because there's a designer that there is a law because there is a lawgiver Well, of the 52 individuals who founded modern science, Elisa, only one of them was an atheist. I never heard this. No one ever told me this at college. They all gave me the impression that if you want to be a good scientist, you pretty much have to leave your faith at the door. The opposite was true. In fact, John Lennox from Oxford University says that two-thirds of the people who have ever won the Nobel Prize in science list Christian as their affiliation. Wow. It was Jesus followers who led the way in science. And there's so many other great examples. There's one American precious, uh, a woman who's a brilliant scientist. Her name is uh, 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 Gladys. And she's, Gladys West is her name. And, and she she's the one who did all the mathematical calculations to develop GPS. Wow. None of us would be able to get anywhere <laughs> without Gladys West. Yeah. And she was asked, do you have faith? She said, I don't even remember a time when Jesus Christ was not at the center of my life.
2: Wow. that That's so fascinating to me, especially in light of... Um, so this week during our homeschool with my 14-year-old daughter, um, we kind of took it... We're doing a Bible curriculum, but we took a break from it this week. To do something a little different. And what we did was watched a debate between our friend Frank Turek and famous atheist Michael Shermer. And so I'm kind of having my daughter analyze the debate, you know, what was Frank's strongest point? What was Michael's strongest point? You know, what were the best rebuttals? And we're just analyzing the debate. And it's very interesting to me that at one point, you know, you just mentioned this idea of trust the science. and, And that's something that people say a lot in our culture. And it was interesting because even the atheist, Michael Shermer, in this debate said science is always getting things wrong. Like he made that point that science is constantly getting things wrong. That's why we have to go back to the drawing board and make a new hypothesis and, you know, gather more evidence. And scientists are always getting things wrong. And yet that was kind of his point was that that's why we do science. We just have to That's really the only way, he didn't say it exactly like this, but the impression was this is the only way to really discover what's true. And then he made this point. He said, you know what, religion, and of course this is all a paraphrase, but he said religion really um, was just like something that people kind of believed and then science started to chip away at religious belief throughout history. And he was saying, you know, we, we used to think this or that about sort of like I was even just reading. This is random, but I was reading about the history of um, mead and the Vikings and how they used to think that when the honey water would become fermented, that it was the spirits. Uh, you know, like little spirits in the world that were invigorating the, the the liquid, and it was Odin showing his blessing by sending these supernatural beings, essentially, to ferment and bubble up the water, right? And so he, he would say, you know, they used to think that, but then science, we learn about bacteria and all these different things and how that all works. And so that starts chipping away at religious belief. And so then he said to Frank, you know, what you're saying is you're just trying to shove God in these gaps of knowledge that we have, And really science, you know if we just trust the science for long enough, then science is going to have it all figured out. But the picture you're presenting in your book is very different from that. So I wanted to let you comment on that and see what would you say to an atheist or somebody who might say, look, eventually science is going to give us all the answers and we won't need this religion stuff anymore.
1: As a guy who sort of went through the philosophy world and academia, the, the thing that always bothers me when somebody says, in the future, this is the way it is going to be, is that that's simply, simply something you can't know. It, it just isn't. Right. Uh, now, science, I, I do agree with Michael Shermer in the sense that science essentially is our way of organizing and learning from failure in the physical world. Uh, that, but, it, but it's not something that gives us absolute truth. Now, uh, there are scientific facts, so I, I think the, the way I would approach that with somebody who's a non-believer is just to say, what are the core assumptions of science that can be supported if you begin with the idea that nothing knowable exists? You know, the on, the only science can deliver truth to us, because how do we know? You know what do we know how did the physical world even come into existence all, all of these kinds of things are are best understood from a biblical worldview in the book i actually shared seven different core assumptions of science none of which you can derive from a purely naturalistic worldview all of which are derived or at least consistent in with a biblical revelation and if you start with those things, you get science. If you start with naturalistic assumptions that there's that everything is essentially meaningless, there's no core organizational principle, there's no one doing the organizing, uh, you wouldn't ever arrive at true discoveries about the world. So it's it, it, it's difficult to to have that conversation in just a couple of minutes. There aren't a lot of sound bites that you can use. But it's fun to look back at the history of science and realize, oh, you know, all of these people, the father of modern the father of virtually every single science, or the mother of virtually every single science that we think of today, was a believer who Mm -hmm. started with the reality of God.
2: Yeah. Well, I want to swing back around to something you mentioned earlier, because it's a theme in the book, and that's the difference between truths and truth. I wonder if you could unpack that a little bit for us. What is the difference between truths and truth?
1: Well, truth, capital T, says that truth exists and is knowable. Uh, Truth, when I use the term truth, I mean what really is, what is really real. So truth actually exists, and it can be discovered, not perfectly, but it can be discovered by us. The truth's viewpoint, on the other hand, says truth is a social construction that no one has access to ultimate truth even if if it does exist so therefore all we have are our individual perceptions so truth says seek the truth truths says speak your truth Uh, that truth viewpoint was the classical viewpoint the greeks believed that the romans believed that the hebrews believed that it's been believed all throughout history the the christian uh change transformation so to speak was the realization that the truth isn't just a set of logical propositions it's a person and and that it's very personal as well but but so there's a there's a huge difference if somebody says speak your truth that's different than saying speak the truth and illustrate it with your personal experiences to say speak your truth is to say that's all that exists so you have to become more persuasive. You have to get your viewpoint across. You have to assert power. You have to use shame and all of the other tools of social influence to try to get people to stop talking if they disagree with you. And the problem, Elise, is that this is actually bled into every aspect of society. Now people are teaching mathematics, saying, well you know if you make claims such as there are correct answers to these questions then you're 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 being ethnocentric you're right. you are you're being racist or you're being uh you're you're being a capitalist pig or whatever you know that but it's actually yeah. being taught that way uh, people are saying things in the political space stanley fish who's scarily enough a professor of the first amendment at a law school says, you are entitled to your own facts if you can make them stick. Wow. Well, if that is What does that mean? Correct,
2: just just <laughs> persuading enough people to go along with it? You, is that what you mean? If means? you
1: can persuade enough people to go along with you, then you are right. Wow. So, of course, you wouldn't want to have a First Amendment that guarantees the freedom of speech, if that is correct, because your whole goal is to gain power. And that, so it reminded me of a lot of the, the, the warnings, the prophetic warnings that I remember hearing from 20th century scholars like Will Durant, who said, uh, a country is never uh, destroy, captured from without until it has mm. destroyed itself from within. And Peter M. Sorokin said, if you give up the idea that there are absolute truths, all you have left is physical force. Mm. Now, think about that for a minute we have a cancel culture. The goal is to ruin people, destroy their reputations, shame them, make sure their voice is not heard. Why would we think that's an acceptable social response? Because we believe that anyone who claims to know the truth, other than the idea that there is no truth as a truth, anyone who claims to know that is just trying to gain power. They need to be shut down because we want the power. We don't want them to have it.
2: Yeah, and that's something we see all over our culture right now. In fact, I talk about that in my book, how it's uh, the infection of critical theory from the higher academia into the wild. It's just in the wild now to where truth claims, especially when they would be made about things like religion and morality, you don't ever see people well i shouldn't i shouldn't exaggerate of course there are conversations happening where people are rooting it in truth but typically on social media what you're going to encounter as a christian if you make a truth claim about a religious idea or what met, what might be morally right objectively for everybody morally right or wrong um very often and this can be confusing for christians you might find yourself um with somebody commenting but they're not interacting with the claim you've made they're trying to figure out the power right. dynamic like why what who are you trying to control by saying this what's what's happened in your past that what trauma have you gone through that makes you think this way because as you've just articulated our culture has come to interpret truth claims especially with morality and religion to be power grabs and and I think that that for me was like a light bulb moment because I would uh, make certain statements about progressive Christianity or something that's unbiblical or something that is not in line with the historic Christian worldview with progressive Christianity. And if progressives came on my blog comments or maybe on the Facebook page or something, uh, it was, it's very, it's very rare that somebody will actually say, I think you're actually wrong about this and here's my reasons, right? It's really more like, oh, you're just trying to uphold white supremacy, or you're trying to do this or that. And it's a, it's incredibly frustrating because it's like, rather than answering the claim, there's this psychoanalysis that starts to go on, which can be kind of exhausting. So I'm glad you brought that up because that's an important thing for Christians to be aware of.
1: Right, we've all become amateur psychiatrists at this right. point. And we all think that we have the capability to discern what is right or wrong about somebody else's motives. Right. And that's the, that illustrates the point that I'm trying to get at. When I have conversations with people about this, I just try to start with, okay, what are the things we can agree on? So let's say, for example, we we can agree that there are scientific facts. Yes, science is always learning. Yes, science fails a lot. But there are certain things we've established. For instance, if I were to say to a person, water boils at 212 degrees Fahrenheit at sea level, uh, it would not be an appropriate response for that person to say, oh, well, keep your opinions to yourself, you right. dig it. You know, right. that wouldn't be an appropriate response. An appropriate response would be, well, it depends on the atmospheric conditions and so forth, but it wouldn't be appropriate to say, that's an opinion, keep it to yourself. Same, similarly, if you had a historical fact, so uh, Martin Luther King was shot on April 4th, 1968, it would not be appropriate for someone to say, well, you know, in my culture, it's different. No, right. because we know that we've established that it's a historical fact. In the same way, there are moral facts. So if I were to say statement A, uh, it is good to care for abandoned puppies, and statement B, it is good to torture abandoned puppies, we know there is a meaningful difference between those two statements. We can't just say, I use words however I want. No, we know there's a meaningful difference. And what, what is always interesting to me, you mentioned progressive Christianity, is that there's this constant focus on justice. That's unjust. This is unjust. You know, We need to be pursuing justice. Hold on a second. If truth is entirely up to the individual, justice does not mean anything. It is, it's a meaningless concept if we try to use it in any objective sense. It's only in a world where there is such a thing as truth that we can discern that justice even takes on meaning as a concept. So that's where I start with people in conversations. And sometimes it resolves and they say, oh, okay, I think I get what you're saying. When I'm saying speak my truth, what I'm really saying is I want my opinions to be heard and taken seriously. Well, yes, I want your opinions to be heard and taken seriously as well, but we've got to be careful of the language we use because we don't want to grant assumptions that we don't hold to.
2: Well, you just mentioned the conversations that we have, and I know that this uh, it's it's interesting because I don't know if you experience this same thing, but when you put out content that has a lot of the what's, you know the 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 actual here's what this is, here's what this is when when I go and speak in churches, all the questions that usually surface in the q and a are the how questions how do I communicate this to other people? How How do I help other people see these things? And sometimes, honestly, I feel like I'm still trying to figure out that how as well. But in the book, you write that Christians today can breathe life into others through conversation. So how does that happen?
1: Yeah, I, I, I wrote a chapter on... Uh called uh, How to Speak the Truth and Be Nice at the Same Time. And uh, I immediately got some blowback from one of my friends who said, I don't think Christians are called to be nice. Maybe you should have said kind or gentle. Mm -hmm. And I thought, oh, that's probably more consistent with the way scripture talks about it. But the point I'm trying to make is very simply that you don't say, I'm going to refuse to talk because I don't want to offend anyone, or I'm just always going to say, let's agree to disagree, or you have your truth, I have my truth. That contributes to the problem. Dialogue is what begins to solve it. And the Apostle Paul talks about this to Timothy. He says, the Lord's servant must not quarrel, but must be gentle to everyone, able to teach and patient, instructing his opponents with gentleness. Perhaps God will grant them repentance, leading them to a knowledge of the truth. Then they may come to their senses and escape the trap of the devil who's taken them captive to do his will. That's a a mouthful, but there's a lot there about how we can and should engage in the cultural discussions of our day. So I'm teaching my students at Summit Ministries, just open the conversation up. I mean, how many times are you in class and you get the impression that the teacher is shutting down thought? That happens all the time. Every student I've ever worked with tells me, that's exactly what's going on in my classes. You cannot bring up any contrary viewpoints. They are not tolerated. So you be the one to open the conversation up. Say things like, tell me more about that. What do you mean when you use that term? How did you arrive at that conclusion? How do you know that's true? We can use conversation and dialogue to instruct and bring truth to the surface.
2: Yeah, that's good. I want to touch on the concept of beauty because this is something actually I've been thinking quite a bit about. I know in apologetics, people are uh, talking about the objective nature of beauty, and you actually address this in your book, and you give a biblical understanding of beauty and how human sin actually twists what uh, beauty is supposed to be into other things like rebellion, self-centeredness, cruelty. Uh, so, So talk a bit about how beauty and truth are connected. What's their relationship? Is beauty just in the eye of the beholder? Is this just something that is random and subjective? Or is there something more deeply rooted in truth about the concept of beauty?
1: We all have our sense of something that we look at and say, oh, that's beautiful. Uh, We think maybe of our design styles. I might like the living room to look this way. Another person might like it to look a different way. We have those opinions and we, we think about them in terms of symmetry and other sorts of things that coherence that we think represent our opinions. And it's important to be able to say, this is my opinion and this is why I think it's a valid opinion. But when we're talking about beauty, Elisa, we're going to a deeper level. Now, if truth is what really is, the question is, is beauty something that's just a surface appearance of truth as it really is, that we sort of perceive differently because we have different life experiences, or is it actually part of reality? And it's funny when you start looking at, for example, scientists who look at really incredible things, I was, I was quoted from an ornithologist from Yale University who said, you know, you look at things like the male bower bird in New Guinea, uh, this, is the, this is the bird that, that builds a bower, arranges all little pebbles and, and berries and things like that to sort of create a pathway into his bower. And then when a female comes by, he does a little dance for her. <laughs> you've, seen, you've seen this on, on, on videos before. He said, you can't explain that evolutionarily he said that it's, there's no survival value to that he says sometimes this is his quotation that i put in the book sometimes the outcomes are merely decadent okay. in other words it's just beauty for the sake of beauty that that exists uh, it's it's interesting musicologists have looked at this there was a huge harvard music project where they they took musical clips that they gathered from all over the world, thousands and thousands of them, and they put it all together and realized there is an essential unity to the idea of harmony. That musical forms, though different in the world, have the same core pieces all put together, and I, which I thought was fascinating too, because you know the old scientists used to talk about the music of the spheres. People, people in past times had a much clearer sense that the beauty that we observe isn't just inside of us. It's actually out there, and we're privileged to be a part of it in our observation rather than our observation being the thing that gives meaning to everything else.
2: Yeah. Wow. Well, I, I love thinking about that, and you dive into that in your book um, so well and explain that so well. You also share 14 uh, ways to practice speaking up in a way that builds trust. And this is, I think, what is so difficult for so many Christians right now because it seems like I know that I, I receive emails from people that just feel so overwhelmed with trying to communicate on social media or they might post something that's their opinion and they just get attacked and it can feel like just this uphill battle. But but you talk about communicating in a way that builds trust. Can you just give us a couple of those, maybe just highlight what you think are the the most important ones or um, that, that people could use in a practical way even today in their in their communications online and in in person with people in their lives?
1: Yeah, well, in this chapter, a truth changes everything. I, I'm smiling because I, if if what I'm about to share helps you as much as it helps me, this will be worth the entire episode. <laughs> it is never going to be possible to share truth fully, effectively, and personally through social media. Social media is organized, and this is a claim that I'm making, but I can support it. It is organized for the purpose of creating conflict and monetizing that conflict so that the social media companies can make money. And we now know that this is true. The algorithms are set up in such a way that posts that express indignant disagreement Receive two and a half to three times more exposure than other posts. So you, it, the more personal, the better. Back in the 1960s, uh, a psychologist named Albert Morabian looked at how we communicate, and he found that 55% of our communication is through our posture and facial expressions, 38% of our communication is through our tone of voice, only 7% of our communication is through words. Wow. 93% depends on you being incarnational, you being present with other people when you're talking about things that are really, especially things that are really tough. Mm. This is why it's a really bad idea to have an argument with someone through text messaging, Mm. because you cannot bring most of the communication gifts that you have to bear in that context. I used to teach business students in an MBA program That's when I was a professor. And my students would, they would come in and have 15 to 100 people who were their direct reports while they were all, you know, they were still in school getting their master's of business administration. And I would tell them, choose the most personal option every time. So if you, if you can be there in person, if you can't make a phone call, if you can't do that, then maybe use email. But text messaging would be your last resort. Email would be your second to last resort, and they found that that transformed the way they led. Uh, email, you know, is a good example. If when I tell my team, look at your what you need to respond to. If you if if it would take you longer to write the email, then make the call. Choose the more personal option. And it really feels like if we could get away from the idea that what happens in social media has to be reality for all of us and come back to the idea that, you know, most of the time it's not going to be that way. We can't we can't allow this platform that's been set up in this way to dictate how we're going to engage with others.
2: I'll just give a personal anecdote to support what you're saying here because, uh, so I'm currently researching and writing a book on deconstruction, and as a part of the research early on, my co-author Tim and I had a few Zoom meetings with uh, people who have big platforms in the deconstruction space. So not everybody agreed to talk to us, but there were a few who did. And what was really fascinating is that even as hard as I try to be who I am all the time, Online, I, I always I always try to endeavor uh, very very intentionally to communicate online as I would face to face, and but even so, they had an impression of me maybe based on what other people had written or maybe what they had heard, and then I had an impression of. Them based on their platforms. And when we got to like on the Zoom, looking into each other's faces, I'm just thinking, like, this is such a nice guy. This is a really nice guy. And then I even had one say, You're a lot different than I expected you to be. And it's, it's, and he even commented, Isn't it funny when you just put down the walls of, what your platforms might be you know, saying back and forth and just talk to each other face to face, bringing that human element into it. And, and we had delightful conversations with people in the deconstruction space. So it's, it is really, I think what you're saying is really true. And I think we all deep down know it, that when we do just take that extra step to communicate in person, looking into the eyes of each other, uh, it just goes so differently, doesn't it?
1: Yes, it does. Yeah, we can never underestimate the value of having a cup of coffee or a pint together just talking about it. But the, the, another fact that I, that I talk about briefly in the book that uh, wouldn't be widely known because we're just starting to get the word out. We've done a lot of research and polling at Summit Ministries to understand our cultural moment. And what we've discovered through national polls is that only about 5 to 8% of people in this country are real jerks. About five, five to eight percent. And what I mean by a real jerk is they they believe that the best way to solve conflicts is to cut other people out of their lives. They -hmm. believe that people who disagree with them should have no viewpoint that they should be allowed to express, and and so forth. Several things like that. So your chances of running into a person who's genuinely hostile, your chances are very small.
0: Mm -hmm.
1: Maybe one out of 20. And even if you're in a very hostile environment, such as a college campus, it might be one in 10. It's not very high. Most people say that they value, they, they would like to think of themselves as people who listen respectfully. They they would That's the kind of people they want to be. So the more personal we can make it, the better. But don't let your fear of coming across that one in 20 who's really upset and really cranky dissuade you from engaging intentionally with the other 19.
2: Yeah, that's really good advice. In a moment, I want to have let you kind of encourage our audience who might feel just walloped by the chaos of culture, the loss of truth and culture, the abandonment of truth and culture. Um, but before we do that final word, I want to ask you to talk about this new uh, study curriculum that you've released through Summit. I've, of course, I've been a part of at least Strobel and some others are a part of it. Talk about that because I'd love for our audience to be able to have access to that. And uh, it's just a great small group kind of uh, discussion, study. Talk about it. What, what is it?
1: Well, we put together a course called Now We Live because we wanted to put into practice the things we're talking about here. How do you start conversations and keep them going? So Now We Live is a series of six videos. This is season one. We just finished releasing all six of the episodes. They talk about worldview, reality, truth, Jesus, and society. And The videos are 13 minutes long. You're featured in one of them along with Lee Strobel. Uh, John and Corey Cooper, who I know are friends of yours, uh, from Skillet are featured in it. Kurt Cameron, Chris Brooks, who's an urban pastor from Detroit, and and many others. They're really compelling. Uh, they, They allow you to take that 13 minutes to watch a video and then a 45 minutes of a discussion. So you can get together over coffee with your friends even non-believers, and say, "Hey, watch this with me, and let me know what you think," and then you have a you have an opening to have the conversation. You can also do it with small groups. A lot of churches are saying, "This is our small group course for the fall," and which wow. is really fun. So thousands and thousands. As of yesterday, it was seven thousand people have gone through this already, and we just just released it. But uh, it's now NowWeLive, com. You can go there and sign up. There's no charge for it. All we ask is that you just invite other people to go through it with you to make sure that you're using it as a way to build a, a platform for truth.
2: That's great. NowWeLive.com. Go there and check that out. So as we close out our episode today, Jeff, I, I would just want to give you the opportunity to encourage our audience um, many Christians just kind of want to throw up their hands and say, look, everybody's abandoned this uh, idea of objective truth, especially as it would relate to religion and morality. What, what would you say to Christians who believe truth is lost? What kind of hope would you leave them with today?
1: Most, truth is most meaningful in times of crisis. And we are in a time when our opportunities to speak truth are greater than they've ever been. Secular worldviews are um, leaving people high and dry when it comes to anything important. The young adults I work with, 75% of them say they do not have a sense of purpose that gives them meaning in life. It's almost like they're wandering around in the wilderness with a compass, which should help them, except that they insist that the red needle should always point toward them and that's how they'll be found. But that's actually how they'll be lost. So I think we've got this time. And the big question we've all asked is, does my life make a difference? Does it matter that I personally speak up for truth or that I personally engage other people? And the lessons of history, especially in times of crisis that I'm sharing in the the book, Truth Changes Everything, show that you don't set out to change the world. Uh, none, None of these people wrote that on their college application. I want to change the world. They just did what God had called them to do. They did it faithfully. They did it to the best of their ability. And they change came about. These scientists didn't say, I want to change the world. They just said, I want to be the very best scientist I can possibly be because I believe that Jesus is the truth. And things changed as a result. It is that everyday faithfulness that really matters.
2: Well, I want to thank my guest, Dr. Jeff Myers of Summit Ministries, Uh, Pick up his book, Truth Changes Everything. This is so great for, uh, you Maybe more of, uh, well, it's really great for everybody. It's written in a way that's accessible for the average person. Um, Got a lot of history, a lot of really cool facts. Of course, don't forget to pick up Live Your Truth and Other Lies, which is my new book that's uh, dealing with the more pop-level influencer uh, type of platforms that are promoting some of these things. So look how good these look together, right? This is, you can just (laughs) get a little pair, right? It is, it's it's almost like
1: our, it's almost like our designers had something in mind. I know.
2: They, look at this. You know, I mean, they, uh, they just like same color <laughs> scheme. Look at those spines, you know. It's a good one-two punch. Yeah, that's right. All right. So if you're, again, as always, if you are watching on YouTube, subscribing, clicking that bell icon to be notified every time we release a new video is the best way to stay informed. You can also, don't forget to go to alisachilders.com and you can click the subscribe button and that will uh, put you on our email list. We will not sell your address to anybody else or give it to anybody else, but we'll just keep you apprised of what's going on. If new blog posts come out, if new podcasts are coming out, just all the things we have going on on social media of course if you see this post on social media clicking like and sharing it uh, really helps get those algorithms going and then of course if you're listening on audio platforms going over to iTunes or Google or Spotify leaving five-star reviews really helps trigger those algorithms you guys have done such a great job with that I mean I think we've got over three or four thousand reviews on iTunes which is so helpful because that tells iTunes hey we want to we want to suggest this uh, to more people because obviously this is something people like so check that out And as always, as we pursue Christ, let's keep a sharp mind, a soft heart and a thick skin. We'll see you next time.